Hello, and welcome to the Good Leadership Podcast. I'm Paul Botts, CEO and founder of Good Leadership, and co-host on this podcast with my colleague, Kevin. Well, hello, and I'm Kevin Sensnick, the Chief Learning Officer with Good Leadership and the founder of Interaction Dynamics Group, the Mid-Atlantic Partner for Good Leadership. And Paul, I'm excited to be back together with you again for another episode of the Good Leadership Podcast. It's always a great time for us to reconnect and to reconnect with our listeners. So how are things in your world today? Well, uh, we're in the thick of retreat season and 2023 planning. There's a lot going on and there's lots to be excited about. You know, I actually heard something at a retreat recently that I, I wanted to share with you. I've been kind of saving this. You know, we're hearing the theme, we need to rebuild trust mm. a lot lately. And I suppose that means we're doing trust retreats. I never really thought about it that way. <laughs> what are you hearing? Well, it's interesting because I'm hearing something very similar across leaders at all levels. I'm sensing some of those same issues, concerns, and challenges. And all circles back to that sense of, do I have that confidence and trust in my team? So why do you think that is? Well, you mentioned something in our last podcast. You called it the great recommitment. And I really like that phrase. I've been thinking a lot about that since our conversation. And I think that this idea of trust is part of the recommitment. I think leaders truly want to recommit with and to their team, but there's hesitant. If they don't feel others are going to be as willing to stay focused, to carry their share of the load, to be committed to delivering results, it's hard for them to extend and feel that sense of trust. And so I think that's where we're sensing this trust issue. Yeah, and I've seen a lot of ornery leaders lately. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think if you're com- committing and the people around you are not committing with the same intensity, right. it brings up a whole bunch of stuff. And obviously, that's yeah. one of the reasons why, you know, executive team coaches like us exist. But it's also interesting, on the cover of the most recent book, you know, we're talking about good leadership as a team sport, right. the title of our most recent book we have the image of a rowing team on there. And that's, you know, if you're not going to carry your own weight on a rowing team, then you're dead weight. Exactly. And so nobody wants to carry that extra weight. And so um, this idea of getting people to recommit in ways that build trust, yes, that's on my mind a lot lately, Kevin. Mm -hmm. So that's a great segue to this conversation about good leadership is a team sport. Well, we picked the rowing team on the cover for a reason. And it's all about making sure that people are aligned with where they're going, committed in the boat, and accountable to giving their best and doing the things they say they're going to do. So this book has been a work in progress for several years, Paul. (laughs) So talk a little bit about that journey of writing this particular book. Well, either I should be embarrassed or I should get a medal (laughs) for stick-to-itiveness because actually we, um, we wrote the first draft of this book five years ago. Yes. And... It's an extremely difficult thing to do to write simplistically Mm -hmm. about difficult concepts. And teamwork is a difficult concept. Now, it should be said we have a team momentum survey. We've done uh, podcasts on that in the past. So we've been collecting data for 12 and a half years, Mm -hmm. over 700 teams. Mm -hmm. And, you know, every time we tried a next draft, um, we always had new information. But eventually we just had to get to the point where we're like, enough already. We've got to be done with this. Yeah. And, you know, we set this year as the date. And I'm, I'm really I'm really glad that we got it done. Well, and it's been great to see the iterations of this book over the years. I, I think it's a an, it should be an honor of stick-to-itiveness okay. because it was the good energy that I think, to your point, has made this book stronger, more relevant. And taking a very difficult concept and made it accessible. As a leader, now I can tie into this idea of my team. I vividly remember our first conversation about the book, sitting in the aspiration suite, when you said, I had this idea, I've been thinking about this, 
here's where I think this book needs to go. And it's been fun to work through that process, but I vivid remember that conversation. So maybe just before we get into the actual talking about the book and the concepts, what was it at that time that triggered that thought, brought that to your mind's eye and made this a, a, a starting point? So the catalyst for me was Megan Remark, mm-hmm. a friend of the firm, CEO of one of the largest hospitals here in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. And we'd been working with her team for uh, already a couple of years by the time we thought about writing this book. And the team kept changing. And uh. she was helping me understand that an organization like a hospital is actually an organization that's a teams of teams. Right. Mm-hmm. And we're talking hundreds of teams. Yeah. So every time we got together for a retreat, there was always somebody new. And she said... <laughs> They loved the team momentum survey. She said, how can we get people up to speed faster? Mm Because typically what happens when we do team momentum surveys is the first one's pretty good. Or let's just say rosy or green. And then the second one, once they realize what performance really feels like, the scores go down. And that kind of motivates action. She wanted us to get real answers on the first time surveys. So that's how we started thinking about this book. And... The first couple of drafts were not very articulate, <laughs> but then um, with help from people like her, uh, slowly we got it to the point where it could be effective in helping do that job. Well, I think the opening research you cite in the book actually talks to exactly what Megan Remark was talking about. Mm-hmm. And this idea of how do leaders and new leaders to a team really assess honestly where the team is at. Mm-hmm. And so the research she talked about was the Russell Reynolds research, where they found that 93% of executives felt they were making a positive impact on the CEO's team. And yet those exact same executives, only 55% felt their team was going to hit the goals that they had set as a team. It's a 38% gap. And I think it comes to the idea of, are we honestly assessing where this team is at? Well, yes. And unfortunately, we see this all the time. Um, our process to help executive teams perform better. First, we have to make sure they're aligned. So Mm -hmm. alignment comes before commitment and commitment needs to be there before we can actually create accountability. And what I see in this number is that people aren't committed. Yeah. They, and commitment in the way we think about it from a coaching standpoint is that here's what I'm willing to do differently for this team because I love what we're building together. So if you don't have things that you're actively working on to make the team better, then you're not committed. Mm. And what we're seeing is a lot of leaders who are, you know, they're resume building, Mm -hmm. collecting experiences, and they move around a lot and never actually figure out how to create a high-performing team. And as you know, it, it takes real work. Well, I find with leadership teams, they love this idea of alignment, commitment, hope, and accountability because they don't feel they have that sense of alignment. That's that 93% number, right? Mm -hmm. So when they get there, they say, oh, we feel aligned. They then want to jump right to the open accountability, and they skip over that commitment part. And so I think you're exactly right. That's the missing piece. And in fact, I talk a lot with the leadership teams about whenever they come back and say, I don't think we're aligned here. It's like, no, we're aligned. What are we not committing to? And boy, that's a right in the middle of the forehead type question, but it makes them stop short and think, oh, what are we missing on commitment that's not allowing us to go from alignment to open accountability? One of the reasons why I think the book is so interesting is that we have a tool that gives data and executives use data to run everything in their businesses, but they don't use it to run their teams. They might use financial data or quality data, but you know, you've been coaching with the team momentum survey. What does that do? Well, it changes the whole conversation because you're right. They use data for marketing, for sales, for IT, for HR, for every aspect of the business. But they almost feel like 
greatness in a team comes from it'll just happen. Or if I have the right thing to say at the right time, it will happen. And I think that the Team Momentum survey gives data to that and says it's not about you as the team leader being the superhero. It's about the team rallying around this concept and really making it come to life and taking ownership for that sense of the team. Well, I have a perfect example. It's a coaching engagement that's been happening over the last year or so and very uh, powerful team, but clearly not committed. And what was fascinating about it is that we run across organizations where one or two people on an executive team, especially if they've been there for a long time, seem to have this secret veto power. And, you know, by not saying something or saying something at the wrong time, they can torpedo things and just stop what other people think are really good ideas that are going to improve the business. And in this particular case, we were able to call out one person on the team in a way that was respectful. And maybe it was hard to hear, but literally the person said, I had no idea I had that veto power. Hmm. And everybody else in the room said, really? How is that possible? And this leader asked for examples and they had a laundry list of examples. And it was fascinating because In the team momentum survey, we measure lots of things and we could go over all those, but I'm not going to go over them here. What the two things that were very low on this team were transparent decision-making. In other words, someone else was making decisions that affected them and they didn't see it. It was fuzzy and low shared commitments. Mm. Both were related to Mm. this veto power thing because they had very high scores on all the other six categories. We were able to zero in and study how do some organizations get high scores on transparent decision-making and what benefits does your organization get? And then also on shared commitments. In this particular case, this team was not speaking positively about one another. They were not sharing excitement and enthusiasm about where the team was headed, mainly because of this veto power thing. So we were able to put it out on the table and go through a bunch of lists and talk about why decisions were made and weren't made and who got to weigh in. And it was messy, but it was beautiful. Everybody leaned in. And by the end of the conversation, it felt like it was this big cleansing exercise. And I know they're moving much quicker now. They're, they're deciding on things that were taking, you know, like literally years of things that were spinning. And so it was the data that was collected with the team momentum survey that got it all going. And that's what, you know, good leadership as a team sport's all about. Well, interesting connection between the transparent decision-making and the shared commitments. Because one's a structural element, one's a relational element within yep, the team. that's right. I think of shared commitments as that one thing or willingness to win together. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm hearing you say is without that sense of clear yep. and transparent decisions, I'm not sure I want to win with you, yeah. which is an interesting connection to make yeah. within the model. Yeah, it turns out that the veto power was coming from a place where this particular leader was feeling more responsibility when they made structural changes and the responsibility had to come in terms of layoffs. Mm. And, but factually it wasn't true. It was sort of a myth in the room because yes, they were weighing in on where the layoffs needed to come, but the layoffs actually came out of the groups and teams and divisions of the other people in the room. And so no one had actually granted that authority to that leader who had the veto power. And so it was really powerful that we were able to see it as a structural and a relational thing. Well, that's a very powerful story, Paul. And that's one of the things I like about the book itself. It's full of stories like this that lay out examples and situations that as a leader, we can rally around. We can feel ourselves in that situation and say, where's my team at in that? How might I relate to that? So I like that connection. I like the fact that 
the book has not only content about strong teams and working together, but it also has this idea of the stories, the data that support that, and how we can blend those structural and relational elements. And most importantly, I like that the book sets the tone for the responsibility of the team. I think one of the reasons you mentioned earlier, that idea of people take on a superhero mindset of leadership. I think that's because we've always been told as a leader, you own the team and you need to make them get, have them get results. And not that leaders don't set the environment, set the tone and set things, people up for success. But I think often what happens is then leaders take on the sense of ownership for the team and they take away the space for the team members to really grow and develop in that. And so I like that this book challenges us as leaders of teams to say, how do I help the team take ownership for the results, take responsibility for moving the team forward and for the overall team success? Yeah, that was one of the last turns in terms of the the logic chain is to really emphasize that final point as the reason why we wrote the book. It's not just a team leader's responsibility. Everybody who's on that team is responsible for that team being a high-performing team. So I mentioned the book is full of data. It has great examples in there, uh, clarity of how teams moved as they moved forward and thought about the team momentum survey itself. So how did you go about gathering all the data for the book and bringing all this all together in such a nice, concise way? Well, first of all, we have a lot of data. Yeah. We've been using the team momentum survey consistently for you know more than 12 years. Mm-hmm. And we've surveyed over 100 different executive teams. And mm-hmm. it wasn't always so easy to keep using it. Mm-hmm. Um, some of our clients every once in a while just push back and say, oh, we don't need to do that. But every time they do, they usually get some data that helps them understand, ooh, we got to revisit some things. And mm-hmm. But I do have a couple of shout outs for people that really helped and showed great um, patience in this process. First is Kelsey. Kelsey's one of our coaches. One of the first assignments she did for us was to do deep dive interviews on people who consistently got greens in their red, yellow, green indicators on the Team Momentum survey. And she interviewed dozens of people. And many of those little stories are in the book there. I should say uh, thank you to our friend Chloe. Chloe helped me write versions one, two, and three of the book. And that's really where we kind of worked out all the, um, the difficult ideas. Uh, and then Joran. Joran is a PhD intern. He's studying industrial organizational psychology. Mm-hmm. Joran was able to take a sort of a data-based look into this. Mm-hmm. And it was fun that we got to incorporate um, his insights. And then you mentioned earlier, you were one of my original thought partners, and you were always the first review reader. And <laughs> you are the one who told me that the first three versions really were not very good. Well, not that they weren't that good, but I enjoyed as we transitioned through the iterations was moving away from just talking about the elements of strong teams to putting it in context, to talking about, as I mentioned a minute ago, the fact that the team owns that responsibility for the team, that it set the tone for where as a leader do I fit into this process and how do I best interact with my team to to get to green in these areas. And so, uh, so it wasn't that they were terrible, but it was a great way to see that change over time. And I enjoyed enjoyed that process immensely. Well, so. I can tell you, I like this version way better than the ones that you didn't like. So everybody <laughs> wins in this deal, right? Yeah, we learn as we go, right? That's right. We, we, mm-hmm. we find that connection. So, well, one of the concepts in the book that we talk a lot about is the idea of uh, epoxy theory. And that's a core concept we talk about within good leadership. And, you know, I felt a little bit, even in this last version, maybe you gave away our secret sauce here. That's a really powerful topic. Uh, before I ask you to talk about that, I have to tell, share a little personal story. So I have a 15-year-old son right now. He, he likes to tinker with things and do things, but uh, a few weeks ago, our mailbox broke and we had to fix it and couldn't find the right parts. So I said, hey, we're just going to figure out a way to weld this back together. So we bought some epoxy and we put the two parts of glue together. We put it back together and 
it, it was sitting there drying. And he looked at me and said, well, thanks, Dad, for letting me do that. He said, that's a bucket list item I can check off my list now. I'm thinking, a bucket list item? What do you mean? He goes, I've always wanted to work with epoxy, and I never thought I'd get a chance. This was great. So I had a laugh when I, when I had that example when we talked about epoxy theory. Well, you know what? Kudos to the kid. He's yeah. working on his bucket list. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, epoxy theory is fundamental to how we think about high-performing teams. Yeah. The two chemical elements are mm-hmm. relational, so, so the care and concern that we develop for one another, both personally and professionally, and then also structural that has to do with the the way we're set up, mm-hmm. the decision-making processes and the rules of engagement and, you know, how teams actually function. A little bit of one or the other doesn't make it work. It has to have equal amounts of both structure and relationship. That's why we call it epoxy theory. And honestly, I'm, I'm really happy to just give that concept away. Mm-hmm. I want every team out there to be a thriving team mm-hmm. where people are growing and developing both personally and professionally and where teams feel like they're winning together. And it would make me super happy if, if every team or everybody who heard this conversation over this podcast ended up with the highest performing team they've ever been on. And you're right. It is our secret sauce, and we're happy to share it. Well, and I think the idea of growing that structural relational component within a team is so powerful. We see that play out in the leadership retreats that we do. You talked earlier about this is our heavy leadership alignment retreat season. And whenever we talk about the team momentum survey results in those situations, we see the lights going off in people's mind. Those areas where they say, that's where I can tie in differently, structural, structurally or relationally. That's where I can begin to think about solving these problems we see in front of us as a team, not as a functional leader within the organization. I think that's really powerful for executive teams. Well, we have, you and I have a retreat we're going to lead later today. Yeah. And we use this in practice when we program these retreats. You use structure to create relational things and relational things to create structure. And so we don't tell people they're going to talk about their feelings. Mm -hmm. We put a structure in place where they can't avoid talking about their feelings. And when we're done, they always say, this was really powerful. I learned a lot. I'm thinking differently about this team now. But if we said, hey, the first hour, we're going to talk about our feelings. It wouldn't work. It wouldn't go over well. so no, well. No, no, that's no. right. Mm-hmm. Well, because in that process, we build that positive, healthy tension that allows the team to, as I said a minute ago, really dig into challenges they see in front of them, but they don't know how to talk about all the time. And so seeing the data, seeing the concept, beginning to walk into the structural relational opens up to have some of those tough, difficult conversations very openly. So as we always like to do in our podcast, we talk about the idea of our success habits. So let's talk about some of the success habits uh, that we can gain as leaders from thinking about the items in good leadership as a team sport. Yeah, so we have structural and relational success habits. And as I was thinking about this, we have the book is actually a structural concept. Mm -hmm. We can give it to teams before they have a retreat, before they take the team momentum survey. But the point is there is structure to it. We can literally teach the test. And then whether or not leaders use our team momentum survey, I think the most important thing out of this conversation here today is that we use data to run every single thing else in our businesses. Why don't we use data to run our teams? And so there are other surveys out there. If you don't want to use ours, use something and get data and use it over and over again so you can watch how the team changes its perception and how it operates together. I think that's really, really important. And then the second thing relationally, um, it's just a lot easier to talk about the things. You know, let's go back to the veto power. That was a pretty touchy subject. And many people did not want to talk about that. Right. But because we had it there down on paper, 
a numerical number and also verbatim comments, yeah. it was there. So that allowed us to be able to talk about it mm-hmm. in a way that was non-judgmental in more of a problem-solving way. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the reasons why I think this works so darn well. The relational concepts complement the structural. And I like it's a blend of quantitative and qualitative data. Both are very powerful in setting that tone. Mm-hmm. So let me just recap those. What I hear you saying, Paul, is structurally, we should use data to run our teams. And then relationally, take the data and use that to engage with team members on a personal level. Yep, it's that simple, but it took us five versions to get <laughs> it right in the book. So, But that's okay. So with that, Uh, I just want to say thank you to our audience for tuning in. And we love to keep this conversation going about leading and coaching teams. So until next time, remember, good leadership is a team sport. And it's our intention to help you build the team that helps you build your dreams. Make it a great day. 